Welcome to the 11th episode of the Elite Prospects podcast. I am J.D. Burke, the editor-in-chief of uh, Elite Prospects and EP Rinkside. And joining me is TSN's director of scouting, Craig Button. Craig, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah, you know what? Uh, NCAA uh, ice hockey tournament is underway. I'm unfortunate for Notre Dame in Michigan uh, with some uh, positive COVID tests that have taken them out of the tournament. But in our pandemic world, you know, uh, things can turn quickly. And and certainly it's unfortunate. Uh, You you know, all the players I feel unfortunate for. We saw it in the NCAA basketball tournament, uh, you know, where, where a COVID case prevented a team from participating. And, and, you know, for for Michigan specifically, I really feel for Johnny Beecher and Thomas Bortolo because uh, they were prevented from participating at the World Junior Tournament and and they both would have been on Team USA. I don't think there's any question about that. And what ultimately came about was it was a false positive. And now here they are again, a really good team, you know, an opportunity to compete uh, for a national championship. And and again, uh, COVID-19 shows that it doesn't play favorites. It's not against anybody. It's an equal opportunity virus. And I, I just really feel uh, for, for all the players, but just a little bit more for Thomas and Johnny, who, who now have seen this happen twice in the span of uh, just uh, over three months. Yeah, and, and especially with Michigan, too, because I've been tracking them this year, and, and of course, why not? I mean, you got Kent Johnson, Owen Power, Matt Beneers, Bordelow, Brisson, Beecher, on and on, right? Like a Cam York, what an assortment of talent. Uh, and and I think I really feel for them on that level, but the other level as well is that this is a program that like they took this so seriously. And I'm sure you've heard the same thing, Craig, like two tests every day. Uh, one of them was the nasal one. The other was a rapid one. Like they took this so seriously and for them to have to suffer this sort of outcome twice in a space of three months for those two players in particular, like, Oh, you just feel for them. And, and hearing Mel Pearson talk about, we've got seniors. Like I think Strauss man is a senior, correct? Like yeah. this is, this is it. He's had two opportunities to compete for a national championship, just robbed of him. And it, it just, your heart breaks for these kids, you know, like this for, and it's, and like the thing about college hockey as well is this is their career in some cases, right? Like some people will go on to the NHL. Some will go to the ECHL, the AHL, Europe, others just won't. And, and they've, they've had this opportunity taken from them. Now, granted the NCAA had a really nice contingency in place, which was an, an additional year being offered even to seniors. And, and I hope that some of the ones who are facing down that scenario um, get that opportunity because it would be so unfair otherwise, especially when you really do know in a world where a lot of people aren't taking this seriously enough, they absolutely did. And like you said, it's an equal opportunity virus that just didn't seem to take their diligence all that, uh, all that far into consideration when it was determining the outcome of, of their positive tests this week. It's just you, your heart breaks for these kids. It, it does. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it speaks to high school graduations. It speaks to college graduations. It speaks to a U18 tournament, junior hockey, NCAA basketball, a lot of athletes that are playing other NCAA sports, you know, it's affected men and women, uh, you know, with all these, with all these opportunities to ha- have, have, uh, 
the ability to compete at the highest level of wherever that level is at, you know, the, you know, the, the pandemic has, has robbed, you know, tens of thousands of, of athletes all around the world of those opportunities. And I, and I think it's, it's just another really good example, you know, Michigan, the big 10, you know, really emphasize, you know, here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to try to keep our athletes safe. And, and you know, for the most part they did. And ironically, you know, you know, Beecher and Bordelow, they left the bubble and they ended up with a false positive, not their fault. Michigan leaves a bubble, goes into Fargo. And, and it just speaks to, you know, it, you know, we know that a controlled environment can minimize the risk to a greater extent. And when you open up that bubble and you, you, you open up a little bit more, it, it leaves open the, the risk to a greater extent for infection. And that's what happened. And, and, and to your point, J.D., you, you, feel for the, you feel for the young players and the young athletes across all sports that, uh, you know, don't that haven't had the opportunity. Yeah, and Notre Dame as well. I mean, you brought yeah. them up earlier. Same same situation, right? Uh, it's it's just you know another example. Sometimes life isn't fair, and oh. and doesn't mean you can't sympathize or empathize with these people. Totally and certainly, agree. they have the full breath of that coming from from this venue. Certainly, and and you know what? It really does make you wonder about the U18s. I mean, they pulled off the World Juniors successfully. Uh, but it does kind of raise some questions and, and you just hope that with the increase in vaccinations, you know, I think with, with Texas in particular, right, it's, it's going to be in Dallas or just outside of Dallas, I believe, uh, they're going to be up to like at least 50 to 60% vaccinated by then. So you hope that that in combination with a high, uh, positive test rate in the months that have preceded this is going to allow for a relatively safe environment, you know, as talking to my friends about going to cover this tournament. And I was like, paradoxically, it's going to be probably much safer than Vancouver. And <laughs> I really hope that that holds true because, you know, we talk about uh, Strauss man and, and other seniors being robbed of, of this opportunity, right? What about uh, somebody who would have been drafted had they had the opportunity to play at the U 18s? Like, what if that doesn't happen, right? And and so you really hope that this bubble can hold. You hope that these kids can have this opportunity, particularly like the Mason McTavishes and Brant Clarks of the world from the OHL, where there's been absolute stasis. Uh, you, you hope it holds. Like, it's a little bit of a cautionary tale. It, it really does kind of underscore the volatility of some of these scenarios. Uh, and I think it's in a... In a like if you're trying to find a positive here, it's that it is a cautionary tale and it helps inform the seriousness with which I hope these athletes will treat the U18s. Well, I don't have any question they'll treat the U18 seriously, but the pandemic and the virus doesn't care if you're treating it seriously or not seriously. It can get As anybody at any point in time. And when we're seeing the, uh, uh, the, the variants of concern spread, and, and make no mistake about it, it's spreading and it's increasing rapidly. So mm -hmm. do we think that that's not going to be the case in another month when just because it's in Dallas and, and whatnot, you got, you got, you got athletes coming from nine different countries. Uh, and, and, you know, you, we know that the bubble works ideally. And then every, every, every iteration of a controlled environment that's lesser than the full bubble increases the risk. And to, to think that there's not going to be risk there and hey, everybody, everybody crosses their fingers. Everybody's doing what they can to hope that you have the opportunity. But, you know, I, 
Like I think that uh, you know, it's uh, we, we can sit here and we can we can hope and we can you know we know that it would be beneficial. I mean, the U18s were canceled last year, so a whole group of players lost that opportunity to compete in an international significant international tournament, and. You know, to think that this is just going to come off just because it's on the calendar beginning on April 26th, we're, we're in full, complete wait-and-see mode. And if, oh, yeah. if we need any reminder, Notre Dame and Michigan at the NCAA Ice Hockey Championships have just shown us that. Mm -hmm. and and you know what i think on that note there's there's not much more we can add except our sympathies and our empathy to the people affected by these positive tests and our, our well wishes for the u18s obviously to carry on without a hitch uh but but when you talk about the game of hockey at large i think the conversation this week has, has shifted to something more structural and that would be the tim peel moment uh with the hot microphone now uh, little old stride in me. I've, I've been pretty vocal on Twitter with my thoughts on this, uh, but I wanted to hear your take on this as, as well, Craig, and we can kind of go back and forth a little bit because I think the game management component that has been highlighted by Tim Peel's hot microphone, I think it's probably safe to say that this assumes to, or this, this, <laughs> we can safely assume that this stretches to every level of hockey, right? And so, like, what are your thoughts on this? Because I, I've, I've seen a lot of different varying opinions on this and i'm kind of of the mind that i would like the nhl to call hockey games like the nfl does like there's sometimes a team has six holding penalties sometimes a team has zero and we just accept that that means one team was undisciplined and the other wasn't in hockey you've got penalties within one or two or three of each other in every game and i just have a hard time believing that that they're playing each other that closely within the rules so i'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on this one a couple of things I would say is, is th there was nothing covert with respect to uh, uh, Tim Peel. He made his commentary to the Nashville bench. <laughs> it was <laughs> like, to the bench entirely. He right? was in front of the bench. Yeah. To the Nashville bench. It's not like he, he, he decided, Oh, look at what I'm going to do. I'm going to, he was talking to the, to the Nashville bench. So mm -hmm. I don't think that the, the fact that it got picked up on the microphone, I don't think provided full context of what was happening. Now, does it mean perception becomes reality? And do I think that the NHL, uh, you know, in the decision they made with Tim Peel, do I think it was the right decision? Yeah, I do. And it's not about good call, bad call, but I think it was the right decision. It's unfortunate because Tim Peel's been a, a really good official for a long time. You can't officiate that many games in the Olympics and everything and, and not be quality. You just can't. Now, a referee has to manage the game. There's no other way to put it. Here's the issue. And it's not about calling the rule book. It's not about enforcing the rule book. It's that the GMs are the ones that give the directives to how the game's going to be called. End of story. Mm -hmm. So let's stop looking at hockey ops and let's stop looking at the ref. The referees don't come out and say, well, I'm going to call this rule or I'm going to do it. I'm going to call the game this way. They call the game exactly how they're told to call the game. And I'm going to give you an example. So number of year, a few years back, just a few years back, NHL general managers started to get upset because their best players were getting slashed on the hands and the wrists and they were getting injured. Well, the Goudreau incident. 
Well, not just Goudreau, there was lots of them. And mm -hmm. so now, who has the puck more than anybody? Oh, yeah, your best players. So how were teams defending? They were slashing on the, those short chops, those short chops on the hands, right? And, and, hey, that's what they were doing to try to defend it. I heard a broadcaster say on national TV that, well, if you can't do that, how are you going to stop the best players? And I'm like, what? Like, if you can't do that, like, so why do we want to well, stop the best players? <laughs> no, yeah, well, but, but that was the commentary. The other team, right? I like, get it. But. Okay, but that's what that. But so, so that that was always a penalty. The slash. The referees were told, "Don't call it." All of a sudden, the GMs were having injuries to their best players or the potential to their best players, and they told the referees, "We need to call this now." The referees take the direction from the NHL general managers. And I think that, you know, and, and, and the owners get in and, and, and the idea of like, oh, we got to even up the penalties. No, the next penalty has to go to the team that commits the next penalty. That's it. <laughs> that's that's what, the take. That's, that's the what take. has to happen, right? And, yeah. you know, but they have to manage the game, but hold the people responsible that need to be held responsible. That is the general managers. Nowhere else. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And and I'm so glad that you took it in that direction because I think you can hold two consecutive thoughts here that Tim Peel had to be relieved. I think for the interests of PR uh, with gambling and, and, and all that, you had to do it. And I understand why the league had to do it. I also think Tim Peel is kind of a victim here because he's operating within the constraints of the league. And, and, and then you look a few, like just what, I think last night there was somebody who was covering his microphone on yeah. his sweater. And it's like, that's not, you've addressed like the symptom, not the disease. And, and the disease is that the refs are operating within these constraints that actually do limit the integrity of the game. And the other thing too, for me, Craig, that kind of just like drives me up the wall is the idea that refs, well, we don't want refs determining the outcome of a hockey game. I think that on its face, that is a worthwhile sentiment and one that we should pursue. But what are referees doing when they let a sixth defenseman just wail on Connor McDavid with impunity? Is that not them determining the outcome of the game? To me, that, that is absolutely doing that. Uh, negligence is, is just as harmful as willful action sometimes. And, and I think that that's something that gets lost in the conversation here. And you know, I remember when the first lockout, the, the entire season, that one ended, we had the new NHL, the new NHL. Hockey's never been better. That, that to me was the best period of hockey. And, and I think we got away from it between 2012 to 16, I think would be fair, when the Kings were winning their cups by playing a really tight checking system. Um, I don't know why we can't go back to that. Like, I, I don't know why we put that toothpaste back in the tube because there was about three months of never-ending penalties. And, and that was really bad for the game. I get that. But the players are smart. They're self-interested. They'll adjust. And they did. And they did. And we had the best hockey we've ever seen since. Uh, it, it just upsets me that we got away from that. It really does upset me because it's like, I want this, this sport to grow. And I don't think you can do that when you're not enabling the Connor McDavid's of the world to put on the best possible show. And I think the obstruction, the slashing, that does it. That takes away from their capacity to put on a show. Well, we don't know what the greatest uh, possibilities for the game are if we don't allow for them. 
So, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah. if, if you want to keep constraints in place, we're not going to understand what, what, what the potential opportunities are and, and what players are capable of. Because everybody, the players will operate within those constraints as well. You know, JD, I'll tell you, I'll share a story with you. Prior to the lockout, and I was the manager in Calgary, we were having CBA meetings. And, uh, and we were talking about not just CBA meetings, but everything about the game. Mm -hmm. and the, So I was in a general manager's meeting and uh, we were talking. We had we had this long discussion uh, in smaller groups and then in, 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 into the larger group. And we we're sitting there and we were talking about interference and uh, obstruction, hooking, holding, and everything. There's a whole debate going on about, you know, what it is and what it is. So I just opened up my rule book. And I and I look at it, I, I read interference and I see holding and, and I see hooking. And Marshall Johnson, who was the general manager at that time of the uh, Ottawa Senators, I turned to him. I said, Marshall, isn't this kind of don't we already have the definition in the rule book? And he started to laugh. He started like, I mean, and so you, you kind of become, you, you know, it's a it. rule. Yeah. But you, so now Lou Lamarillo, who was on the other side, right? Marshall shows Lou. Well, Lou stands up, right? And now Lou's, I mean, obviously Lou has massive credibility in the room, right? Mm -hmm. So he lets it all go on and he, and he stops everybody. He goes, I, 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 this was just pointed out to me by Marshall. And can we turn the page, whatever, on, on the rule book? He said, isn't it already written there? And it was like, this was a 45 minute discussion before we got to this point. That interference, hooking, holding was already in the rule book. <laughs> it was about enforcing the rules, right? So yep. what had happened is, and how many times do you hear this? this? They let the standard slip. Why do we let the standard slip? Like, it's the same thing as highway speed. If you want to let people travel along at, uh, if the speed limit's 100 kilometers an hour, and you say, okay, we're going to allow for 108. And then you go, okay, do we allow for 109? And then do you allow for 110? And then well, all of a sudden it's creeped up to 112, right? And now somebody clamps down and says, wait a second. Well, the, that's not the standard. That person... It's the same thing that's happened in sport. And I think mm -hmm. that, it, it, again, the referees take their directives. Self-interest come into play. Oh, it's got to be tight. My team isn't as good or whatnot. No, you break the rules, you pay a penalty. That's the way yeah. it should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and like, Craig, do you, do you even know what cross-checking is anymore? Like, is cross-checking a penalty that is called anymore? Like, it's, it's, it's still in the rule book, theoretically. No, not the, it's there. It's literally it's, in, the, in the rule book. Not, you would just never know it watching a hockey game. I remember Ryan Nugent Hopkins at the uh, at the combine in his draft year, and he was doing a bench press or whatever, and everybody's in. Colin Wilson was in the same draft, and Colin came in there, and he did like 27 bench presses and everything. I remember laughing with Ryan just off to the side. I said, yeah, that's something you're going to really have to be able to do well, you know, when you get to the NHL, that motion of a bench press, which is cross-checking. Yeah. But to your point, uh, maybe they're going to have to be able to learn that quality because, you know, like, bottom line is, sorry, one, no, call it. And you know yeah. what, to your point about the players, they'll stop it. They oh, instantly. will stop it. Instantly, instantly, because and we have proof of concept. We saw it after that lockout in in the early aughts. We like we know this will happen. 
Um, no, it, it just, I think about this, Craig, and, and, and one of my like hobby horse, it's not even like unique to me, but you know, the debate about Mario versus Gretzky. I am such a student of, of Mario Lemieux. I think he was the absolute height of the sport, like the best hockey player I ever saw. And I remember um, when he said, why would I come back? during the dead puck era. Do you remember that? He had the back surgery, I think it was. Oh, he, he'd beaten cancer and he goes, why would I come back? Like this league isn't for me. It's for Darian Hatcher. He didn't say that. I'm adding that part. But like that was the the kind of spirit of what he was trying to convey was if I come back to this sport, I've got three people hanging off of me at any time. I'm always hurt. Like what's what's the impetus for me? And like, I don't want to get back to that place like that. That to me is, is where the sport has to steer clear of a point where like you have moments like that. That to me is just so embarrassing for the, the, you know, it's the buzzword of the week, the integrity of the sport. Well, I, I would say this about Mario and, and I said it at the time I continue to say it. And, you know, Mario was so uh, gifted, gifted above and beyond anybody with the size, the grace, the talent, right? And everything. So I used to say on every play, like they said, I said, the referee was either going to do one of two things. He was going to penalize the player that was impeding Merrill Lemieux, or he was going to impede Merrill Lemieux, or he was going to penalize Merrill Lemieux for being a, a, a great talent. The problem was is that Meryl Lemieux got penalized 80% of the time for being a great talent. And I can only tell you what, there's only one way to put that. That is so wrong on so many levels that, that, that it becomes embarrassing. And, and yeah. there's also a trickle down effect, uh, JD, that when the younger players start to watch how the game is and they know they can play with skill and they know that they can express that skill and do it, they're going to do it more. And we're going to develop more of it. Yeah. If they don't feel that they have it and, and the league's below, it, it doesn't trickle up. It trickles down. So when the NHL says we're calling this, then the other leagues have to call it because that's the way it's going to be. And so that's where the NHL is a leader. This is where, you know, as a leader, th th that's where you have to take stronger steps for. Mm -hmm. And that's one area where, uh, you know, not going to win any any friends with this take, but I think Gary has been really good for the Gary Bettman, of course, has been really good for the the business of the sport. But I think this is an area where we could really use some leadership. We could really use some some leadership on this file. Be careful there, because we wouldn't have got to the point where we got in 0405 without Gary's leadership. We need I it again. But, well, but, the, but that doesn't mean he doesn't lack it. But remember, he works for 32 owners and 32 owners that have self-interest of their own team and 32 general managers that are working in their own world. And Gary has to navigate that. Uh, you know what? I and, and, you know, it's great. He can go in and point the finger at every general manager and say, you're part of the problem. But what he has to do is, is navigate through that and try to impress upon them in, in the ways that he can. George McPhee, who's the president of the Vegas Gold Knights, was mm -hmm. always a great voice. Bob Ganey, always a great voice. Bobby Clark, always a great voice for the betterment of the league. And trust me when I tell you, Gary has the betterment of the league first and foremost on his mind. And, and, and all it is, it's just another, it's just another challenge for him as, as the league tries to move forward. But uh, I, I, trust me when I tell you, I'm a huge Gary Bettman fan. 
business at on the on ice has led to better business better business has led to better on ice he, he's been instrumental in both those areas we all can be better and then and, and gary's never going to shirk his responsibilities but he, he's been darn good no and 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 like you said he was there for 0405 yeah. he was there and I was you know in better meetings. Than me. I was in lots of meetings when, where Gary was leading it and talking about it. So, you know, it wasn't just that he just nodded his head and somebody said it. He, he was instrumental. Well, I'm glad I worded that carefully then because <laughs> I, for me, it's just like I, I really want to see that again. Like that. Yeah, I know you that do. Hockey, we all do. That's the hockey that, like, I, I want to watch for like six hours a night, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I think that, you know what? Fingers crossed, maybe we'll get to that place. Maybe this is the kind of panacea moment that leads to a reevaluation of the way that we officiate the sport. And we can only hope, right? And, and I think that if in the interest of gambling and a lot of the interests that are driving these decisions, that just might be what greases the wheels there. But uh, we've got a great conversation with Noel Needham of the Chicago Steel on the other side of this. I think you're all going to love this. She talks about Sean Farrell, Ian Moore, Sam Oskevich, Coronado, her career path, more interesting than just about anything else. And, and really, it was just such a fun conversation uh and and we're gonna have to have her on again at some point craig because that that ruled and i, I just think the audience is gonna love that as well so i can't wait for everybody to hear that one word fantastic mm-hmm. and we will leave it at that one word because it's such a good one <laughs> i've been jd burke my co-host has been craig button the tsn director of scouting our producer has been rob love and next up is noel needham of the chicago steel thrilled to have you noel i mean it's just it's fantastic for all the listeners uh to be able to get your perspectives and insights it's phenomenal mm -hmm. well i i really appreciate it and i i must apologize like normally i would have my hair and makeup done for something like this but my media guy failed to tell me that this was uh, a zoom call not just a call on the phone so um it's it's a ball cap for today. Hey, hey, Noel, do you see this mug? Like, seriously, there's not, a, there's not a hat or makeup enough in the world that can change this look, okay? Don't even get me started on what I'm doing right now with my hair and, and everything else. I mean, it's, we're at that point in the pandemic. I think we're, we're past that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how, oh, how are day-to-day -day, uh, operations with the, the steel right now? I mean, it's, it's a season. Oh, are, are we ever tired of this phrase? I think I can speak for everyone when I say this. It's a season unlike any other with new challenges, new obstacles. And the USHL, to its credit, has, has navigated these, these choppy waters, I would say. And I think you could fairly say, anyone could, that they've handled it pretty well. And you look at the season, the way it's going, the fact that they are going to successfully complete a season in the middle of a pandemic. It's, it's great. It's great for the athletes, for the fans. And I just want to know what it's like to, to be in the thick of it, be in those, those boardrooms, making those calls and uh, putting those contingencies in place to make sure that you're doing your part to make sure the season happens and runs smoothly. Yeah, I think it's been, I, I think I speak for everybody when I say that the USHL feels just so fortunate to be able to be playing and, and primarily like giving the players an opportunity to be seen and exposure, especially those, those guys in the draft year. But um, it, I would say that it has certainly been stressful, uh, to say the least as well, just with navigating um, through everything, keeping stuff playing. But 
Uh, I think the presidents of the organizations, the GMs of the organizations have done just like a fantastic job, coaches being able to be flexible with rosters and game changes and everything. I mean, there's been there's been a lot of cancellations and rescheduling and so forth to make it work. And to everybody's credit in the league, I think that they've just done a phenomenal job. You know, Noel, you talk about, uh, you know, dealing with uh, some of the uncertainties that are going to be prevalent regardless of uh, how well you're planning this. How has the cooperation of everybody, you know, opened up the ideas about, hey, we can do this a little bit better. I mean, the Chicago Steel have been uh, a real leader in the league significantly. You've been a leader in what you've been doing in Sioux Falls for a lot of years. But but what have you, what have you learned uh, through this collaboration? Through, through some real significant uncertainties? Well, I think it's just the perspective of the league who competes with one another, and it's important to win, and everybody wants to move players on. I, I think just being able to work together to get through this, to put the players um, in the forefront, and you know, ownership, being able to absorb losses that they've incurred this year to to make it happen for the players is just uh, a tremendous testament, I think, to what the USHL stands for, and that's player development and advancement. So I just want to follow up quickly on this, J.D. Just give me a second. So, yeah, no you know, I, the USHL is a fantastic league. You know that. I, I know that. Do you think that because of uh, other leagues not starting up, other leagues not, that, that it's really put a great spotlight, not only on the players, but on how good the USHL is? Well, I mean, that's my belief, but you're, you're the one living it every day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this says, uh, for this league to be going and and um, for players, you know, there's quite a few CHL players that have dual citizenship that are playing in it this year. And I think, you know, that obviously makes it stronger too. And um, I think the USHL is going to really benefit from being able to pull this off. And, and um, you know, maybe some players that wouldn't have otherwise had that experience are now having it. And uh, it's going to be really interesting moving forward, just the the positive effects that that the league benefits from from this. And and what a testament it is, if you ask me, that that somebody like a Cole Sillinger, uh, across Hannes, uh, you know, decides to stick around even as the WHL opens things up again. I mean, that that tells me that they're satisfied with the player development environment, with the way that the league is operating. I mean, would you agree that that, that really is just kind of a touchstone moment for this league? Uh, and it really speaks to the strength of the, the administration uh, as a whole? I would completely. Um, now, I do think that there is some credit that should be given to uh, some of these WHL organizations that felt that the players, especially draft eligible players and that had the opportunity to play in the USHL allowed them and even encouraged them to do that to be able to get seen and, and to play games and get exposure. So I, I do think that there is, um, you know, that's something that probably doesn't get talked about a whole lot. And for that to happen again, is just another example of uh, good hockey people putting the players and their careers at the forefront. 
Uh, another example, the collaboration and the cooperation that is necessary. And, you know, Noel, one of the things that I've really believed, if, if you're interested in development, then allow your players to go and develop in an environment that's good in the absence of where they were at. So I think it's great. But, you know, it's it's interesting for me just and you're close to the Chicago Steel as the assistant manager there. But it's funny, I've got a lot of questions in recent weeks on Josh Stone. And, yeah. and, you know, I think about it. And so I, I've had the good luxury of watching Josh play. I mean, he played at the USHL Fall Classic as a midget back in 2018, I believe. And then he came to the Chicago Steel, played there in 2019. There wasn't one in 2020. So it's always interesting to me when I think I go, you know, last year, Brendan Brisson <laughs> was a top player, as, as well as yeah. other good players with the Chicago Steel, right? And I said, everybody had a chance to watch Josh Dole. So I sit there yeah. and I go, what were you missing? I really felt he like he would have been worthy of a late round draft pick. And my own feeling is right now is that he's going to be, uh, in my view, a top 75 pick because he's that good. And now, you know, so we talk about the USHL getting exposure, but the exposure was there last year. So what gets missed in, in, in your experiences with scouting and evaluation? You've worked in development, coaching and everything. And not, not Josh Jones specific. I use him as an example. But in your view of scouting and, and having lots of success in it, what gets missed? Well, I'm a huge, huge proponent of Josh Stone, and I have been <laughs> for a long time. So, uh, you know, that's, that kid, he's going to play 15-plus years in, in the NHL, um, I really believe. But, you know, last year, uh, his example, um, you know, he had grown so much in one year. Two years before, he was five foot four. Um, he came in, and the Chicago Steel was so deep and so good last year that he wasn't on the power play. Really, he didn't play in a top six role, and he didn't have a lot of points. And I think in uh, draft, um, you know, scouts or or management, especially those that uh, really are starting to value analytics and so forth points matter and it's always a source of contention um and he didn't have very many and uh and i think this year for him to continue to grow and develop and you know he's six foot two right now he's got a six foot three wingspan uh, you know he's putting up a lot of points and i i think that that i think that's kind of the kicker there wasn't enough foresight um other than ryan hardy who's just a, a devout <laughs> uh advocate for for his, all of his players but really for Josh Stone and and now I think everyone is seeing that okay this is this kid's a serious player that's going to play in the NHL and and not just play in the NHL but be successful in it I mean he's the type of kid that that will be a captain so just the, like father like son <laughs> yeah you know? yeah absolutely uh, you know, since we're on the topic of, of draft eligible members of the Steel organization, I got a, a very interesting text from a, an area scout who was at a Chicago Steel game uh, pretty recently. He goes, JD, this Matt Coronado kid. And and this this really floored me. I was like, wow, okay, I thought we were pretty high on him. He said, he's a top 10 pick, and I would take him over Kent Johnson. 
Uh, now that that was a pretty hearty endorsement. Now I'm not going to ask yeah. you to to contextualize what you're seeing from Matt Coronado in in this similar fashion, but uh, you know maybe give our our audience the 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 read on his game and where you see it taking him at the next level. You know that guy is just relentless. I mean, it, and it's not just in games; it's in practice, it's in workouts. It's, and I think that that's something that you know pretty much every kid in the Chicago Steel organization is like. I mean, it's a machine there. They're in their workout stuff. I have the opportunity to go there. Um, I go there once a month for a week and be able to get on the ice to practice and everything. But those guys are there from eight to five and they get to the rink and they change into their undergar like workout stuff that they wear under their equipment. And that's what they work out in. That's what they skate in. That's what they eat. You know, they skate twice a day. I mean, it is just like it's truly a machine. And guys like Matt Coronado, when they go to work, they're not just there to, like, be there. I mean, they're there to make the most of every single day. And I think that speaks volumes to the culture that Ryan and, and the coaching staff has created there. But he is, like, he's a student of the game. He's an inte- intelligent individual, but he's relentless. And he just keeps getting better and better. And I was talking to a scout actually a couple of weeks ago and, and we were talking about the value of uh, knowing the statistic of penalties drawn. And um, he was saying how interesting that would be because a guy like Matt Coronado, you know, he's so relentless that uh, he draws a ton of penalties and having that number would be really interesting because that's something that he actually talks about in his report. And that's just, that's exactly how he plays. It's an honest effort and it's just, it's relentless. You get the same out of him every single shift. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to while in JD because he, he, he's got an attack mentality and, and, yeah. and then you combine it with that relentlessness and it, it, you, you can see why he's so highly productive. But I want to go back to the culture. And, and, you know, we use the term culture sometimes just kind of throw the word out there. But, but you touched on some things there. And, and I think it's, it's great to people talk, but it's the development of the culture. You've done it in Sioux Falls in, 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 in amateur hockey and minor and like in the programs there to try to create an environment where, where young players know they have an opportunity to get better and they're, and they're going to be nurtured and they're going to be patient. It's the same thing that you and Ryan and the coaching staff are doing in Chicago. So as you try to develop that, that type of an environment, you know, you're obviously want players are going to take advantage of it. Like, so finding those uh, environments and then finding the players that are ready to take advantage of it. it, it, Is it not just a great example of how the two intersect and now one plus one equals three? (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, I think Ryan has been the best part about him is how honest he is. And he does not make promises. Like he's created this wonderful experience and he's got these brilliant ideas and he brings together all of these awesome people and, and, uh, you know, a lot of it is out of the box, but it all works. And everyone that experiences it, just they can't help but be like such a devout believer in what they're doing. Um, and I <laughs> like. He he will tell kids, you have to love hockey to come here and he'll tell kids like we're not making any promises. 
you and they can be the best kids in, in North America and be like, you can come here and, and earn this and benefit from it. And if that's not for you, then this isn't the right place for you. And it's, but the, but it, what you experience there is so unbelievable in terms of development. Like you're insane not, not to go there. And if that's the, if you don't go there because you didn't get any promises made, then you're probably not going to make it at a higher level anyway. So I just think in like, in hockey, there's so there can be so many promises made, or you're so good, or you know, catering to the parents or whatever. And um, I think in Chicago, like he's done a brilliant job of managing those situations by just being like, "Come here, work hard, and if you do, you'll reap the benefits from it." And I think you're seeing now all these draft picks come out of there, and and that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, you know it certainly the, is. And I just wanted to add one thing because I don't right want to let this one go. Yeah. Why is it? This is a philosophical question for you, Noel, and for you, JD. Why is it? It's we use out of the box thinking, but people that are thinkers and creative and imaginative are the ones that gravitate towards it, and the ones that aren't out of the box thinkers are the ones that criticize it. Like it's it's one of my great <laughs> philosophical questions because yeah. I just think that being smart and creative is just a great way to approach life in every area. Area. It yeah. enriches your every experience. That's what yeah. I think. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, totally. Uh, just, just to kind of build on that last point, I, I had a light bulb go off about uh, you know institutional buy-in among the the players and the people who join your organization. <laughs> I look at somebody like Ian Moore, and I went and I scouted Ian Moore last year in person at a high school game in in Massachusetts, and I went. Oh, the talent's there, but he's raw. He's got some things he's got to work on defensively. He's got to tighten it up in transition. But there's a real, like, nice complement of skills there. And I look at the games I've watched this year from the Chicago Steel, and he's one of the best defensive players on the ice. And it's like, yeah. this is not the same Ian Moore that I saw last year. It's really a nice progression. And and I also noticed that in getting to that point, he's maybe taken a little bit off of his fastball, right? Like the points aren't coming to the same degree. But overall, I would say if you look, if you took a holistic approach, this is a much better, more better positioned player to, to play professional hockey than he was when he first showed up to Chicago. Uh, do you think that's a fair example of, of kind of the buy-in you get from your players? Yeah, absolutely. And and he, he, he didn't have to do that, but, um, you know, he's drafted, he's been successful to this point, he's highly touted. And, um, and that's what I mean, like what it's like to be there. Those guys, they'll do anything to correct efficiencies to have longevity within the game. And that's the detail that the coaching staff that, you know, Belfry, um, especially Adam Nicholas, who's now there uh, consistently. Um, those are the details that they are bringing to this everyday thing. Like, it's not just winning games in the USHL to win a championship. It's preparing these guys to be successful at the NHL collegiate level. And the other thing that I think is so special about the amount of work that they put in because it is, it is extensive. And I can tell you it is more than any other organization, USHL, what these kids put in, but they, they are so proud of like what they're doing because they can see and feel the difference and the improvements that they're making. And I think one thing that is completely underrated for the kids that come out of there that doesn't get talked about enough is the confidence that they have as they come out of the program 
and move on to the next level. And when you've got guys like Owen Power, Nick Abrazizi, you know, Brisson coming back to skate and train in Chicago anytime that they can when there's a break or with the COVID stuff, uh, because they value the training there and the environment so much. I just like that just continues to facilitate that culture we were talking about earlier. And now those younger guys are on the ice with the, you know, hopefully the, the first round pick of the NHL draft. <laughs> well, I I don't I, I agree with uh, JD and you. Like I mean, if, if Matt Coronado isn't a first round pick, I had a, I have a top fifteen. Like in terms of just how I rank, and I'm not saying I'm right, but if he's not a first round draft pick, I want to see the 32 other players that are better than this guy because. Yeah. And, and I don't want to and I don't want to dismiss Moskovich either because he's another really good player there you yeah. know, with, with the Chicago Steel. So you know, you never run that, out of those there. You never no, run out. <laughs> but, so, so, so as you talk about it, so let me ask you this, Joel. What's your inbox like now with all the players that want to come and play for Chicago? How hard does it now become to to to, to say no to players that you know that could be that, that would benefit from it that you know will buy in the same way? What type of difficulty does that present for for you? Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. I about two months ago, I called Ryan and I was just like, "How do you?" Like, how do you manage all of that? Like this, the amount of emails and calls and stuff. And like, I have LinkedIn. I don't ever go on there, but I've got, you know, I, I happen to click on there and there's like 9,000 <laughs> with, with video of guys, you know, and, and stuff. And I think it's so awesome and that they want to come and be a part of what's been created in Chicago because it's definitely something I'm very, very proud to and fortunate to be a part of, but it has, that has been a, a big adjustment. Well, I mean, I, I relate to you on a personal level. I check my LinkedIn maybe once every six months. Uh, apparently, it's important. That message has just gone yeah. clear over my head. Uh, and the notifications are, are proof positive of as much. But you know what else you should be proud of is is what a, a fascinating career path you have charted. Uh, some of the stops that you have made on that path. I mean, Toronto Maple Leafs, what an organization to be a part of. Can you maybe just tell our audience about the Noel Needham story? I mean, we've talked a lot about the Chicago Steel, but I want to hear about how you got into the sport uh, and and just being kind of a trailblazer. I feel like too as a as a woman in a sport that is becoming more progressive, but that's been a barrier in the past. And I think it's just so fantastic that you're helping lead the charge to break down these barriers. It's great. I want to hear about it. I bet our audience does too. Yeah, I, I it wasn't uh, ever intentional. Like being part of the game is just something that I like. I love, I'm obsessed with, I think about it all the time. I read about it, uh, try and, you know, um, I think of ways to, to be different with it and, and the coaching aspect as well. I'm fortunate enough to do that. And, uh, my parents, they just, uh, they, my mom taught us how to skate in a field, low spot in a field behind our, our ranch. And, um, I went to Shattuck when I was 12, uh, to play and I just, I was there at a time that couldn't have been better. Honestly, it was, um, you know, all the big guys were there at that time and we all trained and skated together. And I'd stay there in the summers and, uh, live with the Parisi family. And, and we would go up and skate with Diane Ness. And so the, you know, the culture there was 
very elite at that same time. And, um, I struggled with injuries for quite a while and ended up moving back home. And my family ranch is out here in South Dakota. And, uh, and so, um, I started legend hockey, which is a training company. And, and that started by me just cold calling people and saying, I think I can help your kid be a better player. And, uh, that's kind of evolved. And then I ended up starting with a tier one program, um, with, uh, who's the GM at Matt Tobin. And, um, you know, it's just from that, it's just kind of taken off. I mean, Ryan saw me coach a game years ago and he was scouting for the NTDP and he called me a year later and, and that's how we met. It's just kind of very fortuitous, to be honest. I mean, nothing was calculated or intentional, but I, I certainly have enjoyed every single bit of it from the beginning to where I'm at now and just feel, uh, you know, really blessed to be able to, to be a part of the game and make a living off of it and do, I get to do what I love every single day. And, and there's, uh, there's a lot of people that don't get the chance to say that. So that's why probably it means so much to me. Well, I, I would say that your passions are obvious and, you know, yeah. when you pursue your passions, right. The, the, you know, we, we believe that the rewards will come. You're talking about the players, you know, being invested and giving everything. Well, that's, you know, and like, you know, so you talk about being a player, you were a player, you, you were, you, you, you trained and developed, you coach, you scouted. Now you're in management. I mean, all, all it is, is just continue the, the all these great building blocks. They're going to afford you even greater opportunities because your passions are there but you're, you're you're damn good at what you do and i and and you know ryan hardy who i'm uh, i love ryan and i yeah. love the chicago steel and so when i saw that you were named assistant gm there's like yeah like you know the, the like what a great hire and so all, all the path you're on is one that you're pursuing vigorously with the great passions there are no limits to what you can do. <laughs> yeah. And I, I hope, you know, I just want to continue to get better in all aspects, but a thing for me has always been surrounding myself with the right people. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I've done a good job of that, like leading up to, to all of this, but, but Ryan being able to learn from Ryan, like I, he is an elite individual and wow. I, like obviously people talk about his Twitter, which he doesn't really have anymore. Um, <laughs> now I, I loved that too. I really appreciated it because I think it really got people to talk and have conversations, which in hockey, you know, it really hasn't ever been like that before, but he's so brilliant. Like I cannot say that enough. Like he is, he's brilliant with this um in this area like he he truly is and he's changing he's changing the game and he's changing so many things and and truly in a selfless manner and so for me to be able to um not only be friends with him and have this great friendship but also learn from him every single day or when i'm around him is just um like to me that's invaluable it's it's, it's an awesome experience well, I would add one thing just quickly, Noel, is, is that you talk about how you surrounded yourself. One thing I've learned is high achieving people that are bright and intelligent and passionate 
they, they find a way to, to get around other like-minded people. So, you know, yeah. you know, you know, Ryan, Ryan, you know, he pursues that, but it's no accident that everybody has ended up in, 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 in this organization. So, you know, that's significant too. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, it is, it's a fantastic organization with fantastic people. And what better show of, of confidence too on his part, right? Is, is that yeah. you see these people as enriching your capacity to understand the game of hockey rather than a threat to your grip on, on power such as you have one within your organization. And I think that's, that also bears mentioning, right? As part of that story is having that sense of, of confidence and pride in your own capability that you think it can be, you know, again, to use that word enriched by the presence of others. Now, uh, an organization that you enriched with your presence was the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, and that, that to me is a cool story. I want to hear about how you became a, a Toronto Maple Leafs scout, what that experience was like. Um, and just, you know, I, I guess any details that you would like to put out there that you can put out there, because I know it's a very tight ship in Toronto, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you can share, we'd love to hear it. <laughs> it is a tight ship. Um, Especially in the Lou years, which uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not so sure it's yeah. any less JD in the Kyle years. You know what? I suspect you're right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's different, but um, yeah. it, but still, yeah, very, very tight ship and very well run. Um, it was a uh, basically I was just called to ask if I'd be interested in implying to be a scout and. Um, and I, it was something I kind of had to be talked into because I was like, you know, I don't know anything about this or, or whatnot and had never scouted anywhere else, but it was a blind uh, process. And so my reports were, we were, everyone that was uh, interviewing uh, had a number on the reports. And so um, I think that was really, really cool. Uh, something else that was done differently that, that I respect a lot and, and through that process, I was uh, able to be hired by the Maple Leafs. And um, I'll admit, like at first, it didn't really register with me, like how big of a deal it was, because it was just something that, you know, I was asked to interview for, and I just wanted to do the best job that I could. And I didn't know if it was going to happen, you know, great. If it wasn't, then that's okay, because no one really know about it. And um but I am grateful that it did because what an experience that was and to be a part of that organization and, and really, you know, the two years that I was there, um, I feel like Toronto fans really started to get excited, uh, about what, what could potentially be. And, um, and Kyle and, and the whole staff, Brendan Shanahan, um, and everyone that works there have done just a really good job in terms of having a process and being patient and putting together a team that I truly believe is going to be a Stanley cup, you know, organization sooner rather than later. So uh, to be there at that time when those things are going on and just to learn from, from that and, and being in that experience was um, it was awesome. Is there a draft pick? And, and of course, I, I'm 50-50 on whether you can answer this or not, but is there a pick that you're okay. most proud of? Like somebody that you had a, a sizable influence on the team drafting where you're just like, that is the signature Noel Needham pick. Um, well, uh, you know, obviously everybody has insight on this, but I am and was a huge proponent of Nick Abrazizi 
was picked in the fourth round. Um, he is a Chicago, former Chicago Steel player and uh, plays at Harvard. But I think that this kid is um, like just with the criteria that Toronto sets forth, I really feel like he suffices all of that. And in addition to that, he's the type of person that you want in your organization. And so um, that would be, that'd be the guy that I was uh, a, a big proponent of when I was there. Russ Cohen is going to love hearing that because Russ was, was banging that drum. He he was saying to everybody, he's like, if you think this is all Robert master of Simone, I, I got another story for you. And you know what? Uh, a year yeah. plus later seems pretty prescient. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Craig. No, I don't know that you didn't cut me off at all. It's, it, you know, Nick, uh, I mean, he, he, he's a great example of a player that needed a little bit more time to develop and to find his way. Much how we started talking about Josh. And I think given that opportunity, you, you, you see that, but, but you just, you, you just touched on something Noel, that I think is really important is that, you know, you talk about the criteria that a particular organization is looking for. You know, we can always sit here and go, we like this player over that player. But, you know, you know, certain players, you know, you're looking for the qualities they bring. And it's not that you don't respect other players' talents, but they don't, they may not fit what you're doing. So, so as you're going through the scouting process, the, the recruitment process, you know, with Chicago, you know, how important is that to, to, to be very clear in your mind and in others' minds about this is the prototype, the archetype that we're looking for? Yeah, I think it's something that, uh, you know, having a cri- your criteria that, that really generates into the philosophy of your organization and how you want to run things, how you want your team to be put together, but also the style of play that you're going to adhere to. Um, I think that it's important to really stay true to that, but also not get like too left or too right. And by that, I mean, uh, for example, like we are unafraid of undersized, underdeveloped, uh, <laughs> you know, players in Chicago, which everyone knows. In Chicago, it, you say. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I think on the flip side, like you can't, not every kid that you go to look for, you're, you're, you're seeking just like the underdeveloped diamond in the rough you know not every player is going to be like that so your criteria can still suffice for a guy that's 6-2 right you know um and I think it's just the balance of not coming to the table with 10 kids that are five foot four and not coming to the table with only 10 kids that are six foot two and uh, you know what? Just because we're we're, we're getting a little bit up uh, up against it here, and I know some of our uh, listeners are going to want to get some of your thoughts on these players. Uh, let's start with Sean Farrell. I mean, the Habs fan base has to be just overwhelmingly happy with what he's done. He set a new record for assists in your organization, 79 points in, I believe, 50 or so games. I mean, that yeah. is just unreal. Uh, what can you say that somebody who is just looking at the statistics, the boxcar stats, might miss about Sean Farrell and, and just, I mean, what a pick in the fifth round too. Yeah. I, I mean, he is so good and he can score goals. So, I mean, uh, just, um, like he gets better and better. His skating is improved. Uh, his one timer is phenomenal. Uh, he can place the puck into a two inch spot. I mean, 
Um, and at like high rates of speed and awkward ways of receiving the puck, he can find a way to place the puck on net. So, um, he's a, he's a special player that I think, uh, the Habs organization should be really excited about what's to come with him. And do you think he gets enough credit? Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in again, but do you think he gets enough credit for his defensive game? Because that was something that stuck out to us last year was just how good he is as a 200 foot player. No, I don't. And he's, when you score a lot of points, I mean, that's something that people maybe at times assume that you're just not good at. Uh, but he's a very well-rounded player and he works a hard 200 foot game. And, um, you know, he's going to be pro ready. Well, Noel, like you, and uh, I've been fortunate because I've watched Sean play since he was 15 years old, entering the National Team Development Program. And so last year, and well, not last year, because we're, we're past that, but in September of 2019, we were at the USHL Fall Classic. And Peter Fish, longtime agent who, who was uh, the family advisor for, for Sean, he asked me, he said, is there any player he reminds you of? And I said, yes. And he said, who is that? I said, Chris Drury. And he kind of jumped, he kind of said, and the reason I said Chris Drury, and this is, this is something that I think Sean, in that national team development program, they had lots of skill. I mean, he was with that old one group that was unbelievable, right? We know how yeah. good they were, right? He had to play in so many different, but it didn't matter where they put him. He, he helped everybody be better. And it didn't matter what role he asked him to do. He, he, he knew what was asked of that particular role and, and he did it really well. And so that's why I used the Chris Drury. There might not be this, this fantastic appreciation, but those types of players to me are so integral to the success of a team. And Peter, I mean, I was with Sean's dad at the same time and they both kind of looked at me, but like how you describe Sean is exactly how I think he's going to end up being in the NHL. That player that is such an important player. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's so intelligent. I mean, again, Uh, like he, you know, he, He's a Harvard, uh, he's a Harvard kid. I mean, he's just, he's really smart. And so being able to process the game at high rate speed too is something he doesn't have any difficulty with. And um, he's just, he's really, really good. And what about Joe Miller? Uh, you know, and if, if we've got any Toronto Maple Leafs fans listening, he was a later pick. There isn't a huge book out on him. What can you tell our audience about Joe Miller's game? Yeah, he, the thing with Joe Miller is his passing, his ability to pass and place the puck is, uh, it's just elite. I mean, he's like a surgeon with it. Um, I think that's how Adam Nicholas was, was explaining, um, just his process of how he places the puck and everything. And it's totally true. It's a great, uh, it's a great example. So he's, I think, uh, coming out of high school, you know, he's trying to find his way in terms of points and production. Um, but for him, he just needs to get stronger and he needs some time. And so I think as he does that and grows into his body, I mean, he still looks like he's a little kid. Um, <laughs> I think he's using like a 65 flex stick or something. So, you know, once, once he does that, he's going to put up massive, massive numbers. It's just kind of the time in the interim and, and him learning. And there's a lot of value in this time for players as well that haven't quite uh, started to hit puberty or, or or be able to develop enough strength and, and so forth. So I think he'll be better for it in the long run. But he's he's a great kid, hard worker. Um, yeah, I can't say enough about him. 
I still use a 65 flex stick, so I don't know what that says about me. That's, yeah, I, I was so just, I just like, I just want to be clear. So, Joe, Joe up the ground there. Yeah, yeah 65 yeah. flex. That's, yeah. oh, I can't imagine using that. You know, JD uh, started off talking about uh, uh, about Ian Moore, and you know, a, a very successful player coming out of high school. When we talk about Joe, you know, coming out of you know being like a, as you're trying to work with these players who have had a lot of success at the levels below them, and, and they come with a lot of confidence. So, you know, I've been around it, you've been around it. You know, they come with, a, but did they hit that? point of realization that says oh these guys are faster quicker more talented and everything like as you work through that process with the players not only in the lead up to them coming but also as they get into your organization you know like how, how essential is that for those players to to really believe that the process is is one to be trusted and that that, that they're going to get better well, I think with the steel, for instance, you know, that happens to everybody that comes in because the roster, the guys that are returning are so good uh, from the year before. And there is a bit of a realization and maybe even some of an uh-oh moment. Uh, but I think everybody, they're so committed to getting better and they just, they see that it's not a fluke. It's not a bunch of high-end kids. I mean, what you are seeing with the steel, for example, are kids that uh, maybe people have passed on or thought they were too small or, or whatnot. And then they develop into these uh, NHL draft picks and, and NHL players while they're there. And so them going into that and seeing the time that's required for them to put in, I think just allows them to, um, kind of comfortably be humbled is is how I would put it. And but in a positive way, not not like uh oh, I'm terrible at hockey, more like, hey, I have so much more to give and there's so much untapped and I'm really excited to be in an environment like this where I can do that. And what about uh, on the draft eligible side? Uh, we haven't brought him up too much yet. Uh, Mackie Samoskevich. I mean, he's he's going to go high. Uh, what can you say about his game? He should go high. His skill, his skill is <laughs> it is phenomenal. He is the most skilled player on the ice for the steel, like by a lot. He is so good. Like it, it's phenomenal. And if he can put everything together. Um, you know, and stay committed to, to some core principles of the game. I would say he's like, he should be really, really uh, successful in the future. But I'm telling you like his skill and his, his skating, his speed, it is, it's on another level. When you get out on the ice well, with these young players that are so gifted, what are, what are one or two of the things that really stand out for you when, when we talk about skill? Because it's one thing just like, I, you know, I sit up in the stands and, you know, watch and, you know, I have a pretty good sense. I believe that, uh, you know what, but when you're right there on the ice with them, <laughs> you know, what's that, like, what are the skill elements that you go, wow, like, you know, that you talk about that aha moment, like what are the ones that stand out for you? I think just the plays that they make, you know, to get like it's some of the plays they make and the goals that they score in practice are it's got the whole coaching staff, you know, everyone's kind of looking around like, did that just happen? You know, and, and that's, 
that's really cool and how they operate in terms of creativity and how they run their practices and how structured their practice and their day is and that then yet like how they can thrive and doing things outside the box within those parameters is is really cool and it just allows these guys to play like a different brand of of hockey so but you know my i felt it so the first time i went out there i'll just make this quick but um the first time I went out, out on the ice and I'm, I'm also like Ryan Hardy's a very confident person. I would say that I am probably right there behind him. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but my goal, one of my goalies from my U16 team last year plays for the Chicago Steels names, Jack Stark. So I felt like if I got on the ice and I had to like make a statement, like, okay, this is for real. And they're going to kind of listen to what I say after I, like I had to score on him. I had to score like a nice goal. So that's the only thing I was concerned with. The first time I got on the ice was I had to make an impression here that was like, okay, like she can hang a little bit with us. And so that really required me to embarrass my goalie, which I did. Um, and I, I, I appreciate him taking one for the team with that. But, uh, since that happened, I, I felt, I felt a lot more comfortable on the ice than talking to the guys and stuff. You know, it's important. Hang on a second here. Yeah. We need video. We need video of we her dangling do. Uh, the we goaltender. Do. We need to emotional <laughs> material. Like, put away out, like, you know, not to not to use a ranch uh, analogy, but putting them out to pasture, right? Like you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Did you did you hit him with the Malik? Was there a Michigan involved? Like we we need you know, the the full play by play. It was it was top. It was top cheese, so um, he, yeah, he didn't have much of a chance with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna bet he had no chance. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) and it was with at least a 75 flex too. Just so we're clear, no, 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 that 65 flex business. I'm I'm in the Joe Miller department. I also use a 65 flex stick. Well, we we really appreciate you joining the program. Oh, yeah. We appreciate your insights. We we appreciate your story. Uh, just everything you've you've brought to the game of hockey. It's it's really just it's an awesome and still developing story. We should add too because I think there's tons of runway and uh, can't wait to see what follows. Uh, we're we're just about out of time here. Uh, so again, thank you and thanks to all of our audience as well. Thanks to producer Robert Love. Uh, thanks to Craig Button. This has been the eleventh episode of the Elite Prospect podcast with J.D. Burke and Craig Button. Thanks so much for listening.